Friends, it is indeed so true that if our hearts are going to be changed, the Lord Jesus, through His Spirit, must work that in us. Nothing of what we would say, nothing of what we would do uh, could cause that internal change uh, except through the sovereign work of the Spirit of God working in us. As we have sung that song, I pray that that prayer, change my heart, O God, um, I pray that that would be the prayer of every one of us, um, not only now, but also as we will depart from this place. Friends, do you know people who are interested in spiritual things, but they want to keep it light? Uh, they may even be involved regularly in the life of a church, but they want to keep their Christianity at a surface level. They are interested in a, quote, light version of Christianity. They want a religious experience, but they don't want it too personal. They want God in their lives, but they want Him at a safe distance. Not too far, but not too close either. Not in your face kind of Christianity. The problem is that a light version of Christianity takes God to be light or superficial. As we look at the book of Isaiah, we are reminded that the God of the Bible is anything but superficial. Anything but light. And his ways cannot be treated lightly. This morning I encourage you to open the book of Isaiah to chapter 28. We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 29, verse 24. And as you open your Bibles there, we will consider this morning uh, a message that challenges us to consider God carefully. Consider God carefully. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1 to 29, uh, verse 24. You may find this passage in our Pew Bibles. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, you may find this passage on page number 588. Let's hear God's word as we approach him. Here's the word of the Lord. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand the proud crowd, crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. 
the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perazim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear. And hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. 
Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thread it forever, thresh it forever. When he drives his cart wheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak. From the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And when a hungry man dreams, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied, Or as when a thirsty man dreams, he is drinking and awakes awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong, strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heels, heads, the seers. And the vision of all that has come, that has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us and who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into the fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, 
and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves him in the gate. And with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of his hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word to us, to our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to speak to our hearts? Father, it is a privilege to hear your word, to hear what you have revealed about yourself to your people in the Old Testament. Father, help us to understand you. Help us to understand your ways. Help us to consider you carefully. Would you help our hearts to do this through the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we've been working through the book of Isaiah for the past 17 sermons. So this is the 18th sermon uh, we are uh, having as we are working through this book. Today, as we get to chapter 28, we are entering into a new section of the book of Isaiah. Uh, previously, in the previous section from chapters 13 to 27, um, we have seen oracles of judgment against various nations and against the entire earth. Now in chapter 28, the focus changes and zooms in from all the nations and from the entire earth, the focus zooms in back to the historical situation of the people of Judah and the people of Israel. Now God is addressing his people as the Assyrian invasion is right around the corner. And this third section in the book of Isaiah will take us all the, all the way to chapter 39 when we will be beyond the Assyrian invasion. In, in chapter 30, the passage, the chapter after us, after the passage we read this morning, we see that the people of Judah, at this time when Isaiah is speaking this word, the people of Judah have taken refuge uh, in Egypt and have reached out to Pharaoh to get help from Pharaoh against the Assyrian invasion. Uh, this is what we read in, in chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. Uh, that they went to Egypt to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. This is what God's people were doing at the time when chapter 28 uh, and onward is being written. God sought to grab the attention of his people and try to awaken them from the sleepiness that they have fallen into, spiritually speaking. They have reached out to Egypt, and God wants to grab their attention and say, What are you doing? Why are you going to Egypt? 
The text we read today has three speeches that, see, that have this effect. What are you doing? You can see this effect by the word ah. Do you see the word ah in, in chapter 28, verse 1? It's, it's a word that also could be translated as woe. It's a word that can, can sort of try to, to, to get you out of, of whatever you're doing. Say, please pay attention. This ah word shows up three times in the passage we read. And it, it's an indication that actually we're dealing with here three messages of, of woes or three messages of warning and severe caution. Uh, it's also the, uh, the indicator that God is trying to get their attention. These messages are not messages of doom, but rather messages of getting the attention of God's people so that they would know what God is about to do, so they would know God's ways. These are not only for Isaiah's day, but for us as well. We too can easily fall in the danger of treating God lightly, of, of putting the our, our, our spiritual lives on cruise control and not worry about what's happening. We can easily confuse our busyness and our success with God's favor. We too can easily be satisfied with religious activism while our hearts might be far from God. So we also need to consider God carefully. And there's no greater source than considering God carefully there's no greater source for considering God carefully than His Word, where we see God's character, where we see God's, God's mighty power, and his, the way He is dealing with His people. What should we consider carefully about God from these two chapters that we read this morning? I'd like to encourage us to consider three things uh, as we consider God carefully. Here's the first truth uh, to consider about God as we consider Him carefully. God ruins our glory to restore His. God ruins our glory to restore His. Chapter 28 is the first message of warning, and it has two parts. It's the longest of, of, our, of the passage we read. The first part speaks about the northern tribes of Israel. They are also called Ephraim. We see this in verses 1 through 13. Then in the second part of this chapter, of chapter 28, God addresses directly the leaders of Jerusalem, which is the capital uh, of the southern part, the southern tribes of Judah. Now, even though the, the first part of this chapter speaks about the northern tribes, Isaiah's message at this point is geared primarily to the leaders of the southern tribes, the leaders of Jerusalem. It is towards them that, God, that Isaiah will speak louder and longer as we will see. Isaiah wants the leaders of Judah to learn from the mistakes of the northern tribes of Israel. It's as if we, if we were to compare Israel, the northern tribes, and Judah, the southern tribe, with, with, with two sisters, the northern tribes would be like the older sister, and the southern tribes of Judah would be like the younger sister. And the older sister, because she's older, she's experiencing life a little quicker, she gets into trouble, and she gets into big trouble. And it's as if Isaiah wants to tell the younger sister, look at what your older sister is doing, and look at the trouble that's coming upon her because of all her bad choices that she's made. Learn from her mistake. If Judah would only learn 
from the mistakes of what was going on in the north, in the northern tribes. This chapter closes with a parable of a farmer, and it illustrates that God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in his wisdom. God's people, however, have totally lost sight of God's wonderful counsel. They lost sight of the excellency of his wisdom. They would rather rely on their wisdom, on their plans, uh, to help them secure, get secured uh, against the eva- invasion from Assyria. They would rather rely on what they could secure for themselves rather than rely on the Lord. So God addresses them in this chapter. Notice how he describes the leaders of the northern tribes of, of, of Israel, the leaders of Ephraim. Notice how they are described in 28.1. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. This expression shows up again in verse 3. The leaders of Ephraim were ruling proudly, and they're also described as being drunkards. Their drunkenness is is not limited merely to, to actual wine or physical drunkenness. Their drunkenness is also a picture of what was going on with them spiritually. They were slaves to their own appetites, both physically but also spiritually. In verse 2, God declares that he is going to send against them a, a mighty agent. And he gives a picture of, 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 these, of an agent like a, a storm of hail or like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. In other words, the devastation that God is sending through Assyria against the northern tribes will cause comprehensive destruction, just as a flood ruins everything in its path. Then God gives another picture in verse 4 about this destruction. In verse 4, it gives this picture of the fading flower of its glorious beauty will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In other words, Ephraim's glory will be gone in no time. That's a picture that God gives. But then in verse 5, something changes. In verse 5, God declares that Ephraim's ultimate destiny will not be destruction. Look at verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. The people sought glory on their own. God will ruin it for them. But for those who will survive, God will end up being their glory. The sudden change of destiny for for the remnant of God's people catches us by surprise, doesn't it? It tells us that if God will bring low their glory, it is so that he will replace it with his in their lives. It is so that that they would get to see God to be glorious instead of seeing their own glory. Friends, this is why we as a church We constantly want to be vigilant and encourage one another to pursue not our glory, but God's glory. We want to encourage one another not to live with a spirit of self-centered independence or living lives that are characterized by prideful actions or prideful attitudes. Friends, our pride can show up in so many ways in our lives. It can show up when we think we know what's better for us, rather than 
listening to what God says would be better for us. It shows up when we become more concerned with our achievement or our, our, our busyness rather than being concerned with our maker. Our prideful attitude shows up in how we regard God's word. In verses 9 through 13, the people, um, the people that God is addressing were uh, in full contempt against God's word. If anyone began speaking for God, they began mocking the word of God and saying that it is fitting only for children. You see that in verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? And the answer they give, speaking about a prophet of the Lord who would speak on God's behalf, the answer they would give to those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast, in other words, only to toddlers, only to infants. And then there's this phrase that shows up, uh, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. These are rhymes that, that would, you would say to, to children, to little kids. And these people are now comparing the message from the Lord through the prophet as if it's just a message for kids. A modern equivalent of their attitude would be, hey, pastor, what the Bible says um, sounds to be like fairy tales. Only kids could believe that stuff. But we're adults. We know better than that. Um, occasionally, I run into people who may not say it exactly that way, but here's another way they would show contempt for God's word. Um, occasionally, I might run into people who would say that they want to start uh, bringing up their kids in the church. And they would start considering coming back to church, not so much for them, but for the kids. Because they know God's word would be wonderful for the kids. They don't really need it, but they really want their kids to get it. Well, friends, that attitude is an attitude of contempt against God's word. As if it's good just for, for those who are easily gullible. Well, friends, Isaiah responds to their mockery in verse 11 and says, For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. If Israel was not willing to pay attention to God's message in plain language, God will speak through them, or God will speak to them through a foreign tongue, the tongue of the Assyrians. And so in verse 13, God leaves them to continue to think that this word, that his word is childish. In verse 13, God says, all right, go ahead and keep, keep thinking that way. Keep thinking that it's precept upon precept, line upon line. Why? Verse 13, so that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. If we begin considering God's word worthless or make it account as if it was just kids' talk, God will let us fall to our own ruin. God will not let himself to be mocked. Friend, if you have mocked God's word in the past, and if God is letting you reap the fruits of, of, of ruin, acknowledge the foolishness of your past thinking. But remember that when God lets us reap our ruin, it is so that he would replace it with himself as our glory. This is God's message about Ephraim. The ruin of your glory is just around the corner. But after all is said and done, I want to become your glory. 
I want to replace your glory with myself. This is an amazing part about who God is. When he brings us to our ruin, he doesn't leave us there. He gives us himself as a crown of glory. And all this is about the northern kingdom of Israel. Starting with verse 14, God begins addressing the leaders of the southern kingdom of, Ju of Judah, the leaders of Jerusalem. They were supposed to learn the bad things that have turned out so poorly for the northern kingdom. But the leaders of Judah didn't learn their lessons. They wanted to make their own mistakes. So now God, in verse 14, addresses them directly. There's a big therefore in verse 14. It tells us that what went ahead, verses 1 to 13, is like the, the illustration for what God really wants to say now to the people of Judah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Now friends, if God called the people, the leaders of the northern kingdom, uh, drunkards, he calls the leaders of the southern kingdom scoffers. What an indictment. Remember the book of Psalms, how the book of Psalms begins in Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is a man who does not sit on the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord. Now Jerusalem's leaders are described by God as being scoffers. The scoffer is haughty. He's proud. He's unable to receive discipline. He's unwilling to receive correction. He's unwilling to receive rebuke. He defies God's word. Now, how do we know that these leaders of Jerusalem have become scoffers? Well, they preferred to seek help from Egypt rather than rely on the Lord. In verse 15, we have an interesting picture. In verse 15, God says, or Isaiah says, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, and we have an agreement. When, we, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. Now, what agreement is Isaiah talking about here? The agreement Judah made was with Egypt. The whip they were concerned about was Assyria. But Isaiah was so strongly opposing the reliance on Egypt that here, in an ironic way, he calls it as a covenant with death. Because in Isaiah's eyes, really, to rely on anything else other than the Lord is not to take the path of escape, but to take the path of death. Isaiah calls this, this covenant with Egypt as a covenant with Sheol, as a covenant with death itself. In contrast to Judah's covenant with death, the Lord provides a better alternative. Look at verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, the people of Judah at this time were, were running around seeking frantically how to secure their future against this invasion from Assyria. They were frantically in haste, making sure that everything is set so that when Assyria comes, they're ready along with their reliance on Egypt. Beautifully, God says, whoever believes will not be in haste. God promised to give his people a different foundation than the one they were seeking. 
It's amazing that the Apostle Peter understands this promise to be fulfilled ultimately in Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6, the verses we've read earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in the service, Peter says, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices uh, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and the passage he reads is Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, the stone that, that God offered as a foundation proves to be a person. His own son, Jesus. I wonder if, if you have ever responded to Christ with a kind of heart attitude that reveres him as the foundation of your life. Not, not as an add-on, but as a foundation on which you can build your life. In verses 18 through 21, the result of building on the foundation that God provides is that the lies and the false refuge will be swept away. I love how David Jagman speaks on this. When we come to know the stone as our foundation, no other refuge will prove to be adequate. Friends, this indeed is a sign that we have come to embrace God's solid foundation in Christ. It is when we become fully aware that nothing else will be able to be our shelter. I wonder if you have come to cherish Christ this way. I wonder if you have come to cherish Christ this way. That nothing else can be a shelter and a refuge as Jesus is. In verse 22, Isaiah calls his hearers to stop scoffing. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. The contrast to scoffing is in verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Friends, ask yourself, how much attention do you pay to God's word? How much do you care about what God might have to say about your way of life? Are there any inclinations uh, to grow in you, that grow in you a, a, an attitude of a scoffer. Turn away from it and replace it with attentiveness to God's Word. Isaiah concludes this message, his first message in chapter 28, by giving the parable of a farmer. The imagery takes us to see the, the stages that a farmer goes through as he begins plowing the land, as he, begins as he continues to level the land, and then planting the seeds carefully. And then in, in verse 24, Isaiah asks, Does the farmer plow continuously? No. There are more steps beyond the plowing. In the second half of the, of the parable, the farmer shows wisdom in, in how he gathers the harvest. The farmer knows that not every plant will be harvested the same way. Different equipment need to be used for different crop. And Isaiah says, how does he know that? In verse 26, 20, I'm sorry, verse 29, this also comes from the, whole Lord, uh, from the Lord of hosts. In other words, how does a farmer know that? 
Well, the Lord tells him, and he receives instruction from the Lord. The Lord has set up the way agriculture should be done or the way plants grow. And the farmer submits to God's laws of how nature grows. The farmer knows, and he listens to the word of the Lord as he goes about planting. But you, Judah, you're not listening to the instructions of the Lord. This is an illustration by which Isaiah tries to get God's people to start paying attention. The Lord has given us instruction in his word of how to live our lives. The farmer knows it. Why don't we? God not only ruins our glory to establish his, the second message that Isaiah gives to his people, the second point that God makes to his people is that God confronts superficial worship. God confronts superficial worship. This is a, the second point we learn about how we should consider God carefully. God confronts superficial worship. In chapter 29, we see a picture of Jerusalem in its festival religious worship in verse 1. God interrupts their festivals of worship. And in verse 2, God says, I will distress Ariel. Now, this is the only time in, in the entire Old Testament where Jerusalem is named or addressed by this name, Ariel. It is a Hebrew word that means or refers to the flat surface of the altar on which fire was lit to consume the sacrifice. It's a place on the altar where fire was lit to consume the sacrifice. And God says, I will distress Ariel. There shall be moaning and lamentation. She shall be to me like an Ariel. It's possible that Isaiah is using this word here for Jerusalem as a way of saying that God will be lighting up another fire in Jerusalem, the fire of his judgment against Jerusalem's sin. In verse 3, God says, I will encamp against you and all around you and will besiege you with towers. Now, historically, we know that it was Assyria who came to besiege Jerusalem. But God says, I am the one besieging you. Why? Why is God saying that? So that the people of Judah would realize that their biggest problem and their biggest threat is not Assyria. Their biggest problem was God. And the solution to their problem was not simply, let's resist Assyria or let's fight off Assyria. No. If the Lord was the one who was besieging them, the solution was return to the Lord. Their horizontal crisis was a sign of a vertical crisis. Friends, there are times when God is trying to get our attention by bringing us horizontal crises. And the solution is not to find our way through them or put them aside, but to restore the vertical crisis with the Lord. In verses eight through, 5 through 8, God says that he will visit the city and he will act against the enemies that besiege Jerusalem. And the result of that is that enemy, the, the Jerusalem's uh, enemies will be like a dream and a vision of the night. And indeed, this was the case with Assyria. God wiped them out in a night. Friends, this promise showed the Israelites and the people of Judah that God's chastisement was temporary. Yes, God was going to come against Jerusalem. He himself will besiege Jerusalem, 
But when he's done with his work, he's starting against the enemies of Jerusalem and wiping them out. This promise also showed the Israelites that the way to get rid of the Assyrians was not by going to Egypt, but by going to the Lord. It's the Lord who brought the crisis, and the Lord will take it away if only they would return and seek him. But Israel did not get it. I'm sorry, the people of Judah did not get it. In verses 11, of 9 through 11, the Lord poured out against them spiritual blindness. God commands uh, four times, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourself and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. Why? Why would they be drunk and why would they be staggering? Verse 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, has covered your heads, the seers. Well, this seems strange. Why would God do that? Why would God act this way? God responds to the mockery of his people by giving them what they desired. God responds to the mockery of his people by giving them what they desired. They desired to ignore God. Well, now God sends them in even greater ignorance. In verse 13, we are given an explanation. Why are things turning this way? And this gets to the heart of the problem. Why are there things this way? Because this people draw with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Well, friends, this tells us why the people were mocking God. They were still religious. They were still going through the motions of religion without seeking God with their hearts. This is a scary warning that God is not impressed at all by merely our outward formalism. If anything, such empty external worship is worthless. To worship God outwardly without the heart seeking God, it's useless. Religion that leaves our hearts far from God is dangerous. It's dangerous because it leads you to think that you're right when in reality you're still blinded to your own spiritual condition. Singing songs, even offering prayers to God, might be totally pointless unless, unless our hearts are seeking God through them. Sometimes people think that they are close to the Lord because they pray. Friends, may I say to you this? You can even pray and still have your heart far from the Lord. Because you may only want the goodies from the Lord without actually wanting to be near the Lord. Without actually wanting the Lord to be near to you. Sometimes people pray simply because they want God to approve their plans. Even prayer can become a merely external worship while our hearts are far from God, and God sees through it all. We might deceive ourselves, we might deceive others, but we can't deceive the Lord. Being religious without having your heart close to God is worthless. Notice what is God's solution to such superficial worship? In verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, 
and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Friends, God promises to do great things with his people. Interestingly, to the people who are religious formalists, who worship God superficially, God promises to do great things with them. That's surprising, isn't it? But notice that the, surprise, the, the great things that God plans to do is not to wow them. It's not to amaze them. God says he will do great things with them so that the wisdom of their wise men would perish. So that the discernment of their discerning men would perish. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses these words from this passage in, this, in his letter to the church in Corinth to tell them that God has determined to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Through what? Through a great wonder. What's that great wonder? It's a cross of Jesus. The remedy to our heartless worship is to be faced with the wonder of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ reveals the seriousness of our sin and the depth of our corruption. As the song that we have sung earlier, smitten, stricken, and afflicted, reminds us of, sin has affected the core of our being. If our religion could make us right with God, Christ would not have had to die. But Jesus died because man cannot make himself right with God. Man cannot change his heart. Only God can, and he, he can do it. When we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, oh friends, it's not merely a decision of ours. God, by His Spirit, produces a change of heart inside of us so that when we turn to God in repentance and faith, it's not merely an emotional response. It's not merely a decisional response, but rather it is the evidence of a heart that God has already changed through the hearing of the Word of God. Friends, even in the Old Testament, God was sick of receiving merely external worship that covered up a rebellious heart. And if God was sick of that in the Old Testament, we know that Jesus was sick of that in the New Testament in Mark 7 because he quotes Isaiah 28 to tell the Jewish leaders why external worship will do nothing without a change of heart. Friends, that's the same for us today. The true Christian message is not merely a change of externals. It's a change of heart. That's why we have sung before the sermon, Change my heart, O God. May it ever be true. Friends, God desires for us to consider Him carefully. Because he is a God who confronts superficial worship. Thirdly, the third thing God wants us to to consider carefully as we consider him is that God exposes the dead end of rebellion. God exposes the dead end of rebellion. In the rest of chapter 29, we see God addressing the people who think they can hide their plans from God. It says, verse 15, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? In verse 16, Isaiah says that by turning away from God, such people have the impression that they are turning things upside down. 
Then Isaiah says, Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? In other words, the people who seek to hide their plans from God, or those who think they can rebel against God, forget that God is the one who made them, just as a potter forms clay into a shape. And in the remaining of this chapter, Isaiah describes how God will reverse the current reality of brokenness and rebellion. Notice the promise he gives in verse 18. In that day, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. In other words, God will give new abilities and new appetites that were not there before. I love how Alec Motier points out that God will reverse the curse of spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. Friends, there's a reason why when Jesus came and walked among us, some of the miracles he loved doing and did most often were the miracles of opening the eyes of the blind and opening the ears of the deaf. God was showing his people that God is about to reverse the curse of the rebellion. God will not let the upside world remain that, world, that way. Notice what he says in verse 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. In verse 20, God will bring the scoffers and the ruthless to an end. They will not endure. In other words, if you are not a Christian, my friend, consider the promise God makes in this verse. He says that the path of ignoring our Creator, the path of, of living in rebellion against God is a dead-end path. The current spiritual blindness of people is not a problem too big for God to handle. And He will reverse it. He will bring sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. In verse 22, God gives one of the most beautiful pictures of what will that reversal look like on the people of God. A picture of what God's people, after God's transformation has taken place, here's how they will be. In verse 22, their shame will be taken away. In verse 23, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. In other words, they will declare the holiness of God. Friends, do you cherish and exalt God? For his holiness. In verse 23, God's renewed people will stand in awe of him. Friends, I wonder if you are living in awe of God. Does your heart dwell in awe of God? I wonder how you cultivate this awe for God. Or have you settled in for a boring view of God that lets you redirect your awe to the things of this earth? In verse 24, God promises to give understanding to those who have gone astray. Look at the beautiful promise. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. God will replace their waywardness with a spirit of understanding. And instead of murmuring, people will begin accepting God's instruction. Friends, to murmur is to have a self-pitying determination to dwell on the worst outcome and thus refuse to accept God's instructions. And God says, I will reverse even that. Oh, friends, here's why we should consider God carefully. Here's why we should steer away or be careful of, of not embracing a light view of Christianity or a superficial view of Christianity. Wanting God in your life 
but not too far, nor too close. Just there in the middle, this balanced um, view of, of, of having God in the middle. Oh, friends, the God of the Bible will not allow himself to be worshipped in a light way. The God of the Bible will not allow himself to be sought in a superficial way. Consider God carefully. And this passage shows up what that involves. That God ruins our glory to restore His. God confronts superficial worship and God exposes a dead end of rebellion so that we might be awakened to realize the greatness of Him. What He's able to do when He begins transforming. Oh friends, as we consider God, let's not settle in for a light version of God but seek him as he is. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, no one is able to open the eyes of the blind. No one is able to open the ears of the deaf. No one is able to bring life to those who are dead in their sins. But you, O Lord, can. And in this passage today, you have shown us how you do so by laying a foundation in Zion. Father, we thank you that you have made it very clear to us that that foundation is the Lord Jesus. Would you, O oh Lord, would you, O oh Father, help us to put our confidence and reliance fully and exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ so that through him we may see so that through him we may hear, so that through him we may be enriched, so that through him we may have life. In his name we pray. Amen.